Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is Adam Thompson, brand manager for Cranky Health. Adam previously spent a decade working in media for Mix 106.5, The Edge and Channel 10, and then in a PR role for the Parramatta Reels. He chats about how a random meeting in a karaoke bar opened the door to his media career, why work ethic is so important, and the future of digital media in Australia. Adam has so many great stories to share, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. Adam Thompson, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. It's great to be here, Ralphie. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, you're currently working for Adam McDougall's company, is that right? Uh, that's right, yeah. I started with Adam uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I worked with Adam in television. Um, I hired him for a TV show I, I was executive producer for, and uh, yeah, we sparked up a pretty good friendship. I knew him from when I was doing the rugby league round as a journo, and uh, he contacted me. Uh, he just got a, a deal with uh, The Telegraph to do some um, multimedia-type kind of material and content. Um, he wanted some help with that. So I uh, first stepped in doing a little bit of work with him in that side of things for his content. And then I was working a couple of days and he said, can you work three days? And he said, can you work four days? And um, that just developed into a kind of full-time gig and uh, kind of last year and a half have been his brand manager for all his businesses. And that involves the um, man shake? Yeah, involves the man shake. Yeah, 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 yeah. Lose the beer gap without losing all the beers. Um, you know yeah. the slogans? Oh, yeah, I know them well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the man shake, um, that's our kind of core core product to our business. Um, uh, we've also got our online training program, which he launched last year, um, which is the Man Challenge, which is uh, which has been growing, uh, just just been incredible, really, the growth in that part of the business. I mean, uh, these online training programs, Michelle Bridges has really made it her own with that 12WBT yep. and uh, our big thing, much like the Man Shake, nothing really caters for blokes. Um, you know, three out of four Aussies are overweight in Australia at the moment or obese, um, so that's been kind of Adam's... That's his target. That's where his bullseye's at. So yep. we wanted to create a program that, you know, guys are a bit uh, have a tendency to shy away from things like Weight Watchers or Leagues. Like, oh, that's 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 for Sheila's. It's not yeah, for blokes, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, so we want to make something that uh, guys can go. Oh, okay. Well, other blokes do this, and we can get along. So yeah, it's a ten week online training program um, uh, for blokes. Uh, ten minute workouts. Um, it's about time being time poor, uh, being accessible. Um, so, yeah, no, that's going really well. And then uh, we've got the Lady Shake, uh, which uh, we sell, uh, but we'll launch later in the year, uh, which is obviously a female yeah. proposition. Um, and then there's just Adam himself as a business. So, obviously, he's uh, um, he's a business within himself uh, with his, you know, obviously, he's a Works with News Limited, um, do some work at Triple M. Um, so, he's managing Nick Fordham, looks after a lot of stuff, and then I deal with stuff in-house for him, so... Part of that is creating the content that goes around what the man shake is. So, yes. like, you know, online blogs and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's certainly one part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then you've got kind of the advertising part of it. Obviously, we are now uh, back of Jersey for the Knights, um, which has been getting a lot of airplay because they've been losing a lot of games sitting behind a try line. So, <laughs> <laughs> our sponsorship's getting a lot of traction, but. Uh, which is unfortunate, but yeah, things like yeah, uh, marketing and um, yeah, and content development, product development, as far as especially uh, in and around our online program. Adam seems to be not your regulation rugby league guy. If that makes any sense, he's always been a bit different and um, someone who obviously has a, a clear vision for where he wants to take 
the business and also developing all of these products himself, um, a lot of time and effort goes into that. So yeah. he's a really switched on and driven guy, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, he's always been a bit different. I mean, everyone knows him as the mad dog, but um, the reality of it is he studied at university every single year of his playing career. Um, uh, second widget, he's got a, he's got a master's. He's... Um, uh, you know, done, he's, he did economics at university, which yeah. might surprise a lot of people in business management. Um, so he's a really savvy guy. I've learned a lot from him, uh, certainly from a um, commercial standpoint. I mean, uh, long career in the media, um, but uh, not really in that commercial space. Um, so, so, you know, being able to work in that space was new to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been great to be able to transfer some of the stuff I've learned over the years into – um, into what's happening now, um, you know, uh, content is king and um, it's kind of sat me in a nice place in regards to, you know, from a marketing and brand management perspective, which has been good. Let's backtrack a little bit. You mentioned there that you worked in radio and TV before going on to, to work with Adam. Where did it all start for you? Wow. Well, it all started for me at a karaoke bar. Wow. By surprise, if this is a different people. entry point than most people I've had. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it started. Okay. Look, I um, when I finished uh, finished high school or whatever, I, I was um, I was kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to be a musician as a kid. Actually, I was did, fancied myself as a bit of a singer, and I uh, started working for a guy who's doing karaoke shows of all things. And uh, so that's at night time around Sydney. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bowman, a few horns, the Royal Hotel. We had that on, on the Red Lion Hotel in Roselle. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. No, we were, we were in a few. The Crow's Nest Hotel had a few gigs there. Um, yeah, so I was doing that, and what I discovered while I was doing is I kind of I was getting more enjoyment making people laugh than I was actually singing. So I thought, oh, maybe right. maybe that's my go. And uh, we started doing a few more shows. Anyway. Uh, from that, I did like a community radio show uh, off the back of that with this guy that I was working for. He okay, said, where oh, was that at? Uh, was, what was the station? God, I think it was. It was in Burwood. I should remember the. I should remember the stream. I, th- I might have been eighty-eight, maybe it was a community station. Right. Anyway, this show it was supposed to be cultural station, so it was supposed to be Italian and Greek okay. or whatever. Yeah. Now. I'll preface this by saying I'm a Kiwi, but <laughs> living in a Mozzie. But um, the guy I was working with is an Italian, so he got the gig because he told him it was going to be an Italian show. It was anything but an Italian show. It was just a couple of blokes on there gibbering. Yeah. So from that, I thought, oh, I really want to do radio. So I did some research and discovered afters and went through the process of applying for the radio broadcasting course. Yeah. Now, I don't know too much about the course now, but uh, what is it now, 14, 15 years ago, it was a pretty select course. I think only maybe 10 or 12 people got in per year. Yeah. Um, so I applied for the course. In the meantime, I was doing this karaoke show and a lady by the name of Sammy Power um, stumbled across my show in Leichhardt. Yeah. Um, now, I knew the name Sammy Power. I'd heard her on radio, but I didn't know what she looked like. Um, and so this lady came up to me randomly one night at my karaoke show um, in Leichhardt at the Royal Hotel. I was doing it with uh, Christina Davis. I don't know if you remember her from Big Brother fame, but yes. ballerina, yeah, yeah, yeah. Christina Ballerina. I was doing a show with her at the time, and uh, anyway, this lady comes up to me. She goes, "Oh, what are you doing with your life?" I went, "Oh, right now I'm doing." Imagine that voice. (laughs) I go, "Right now I'm doing a karaoke show," (laughs) and she goes, "She goes, you don't want to be doing this forever, do you?" I went, "Oh, no, no, I'm actually applied to go in a radio course." Um, And she goes, "I might be able to help you. Here's my card. Give me a call Monday." And I was a bit dark, and 
you know, got the card in the light and it was one of those moments where I oh, realised who it is. I'm going, oh, I've looked up and, and she was gone. And I'm like, oh, wow. So, anyway, I, I gave her a call. She said, why don't you come in one morning and, um, try, you know, have a look. So I went in and I just, it was just the most amazing thing ever, Breakfast Radio. So this was at Mix 106.5, Mix as 106. it was known then. Yes. Which is now um, Kiss FM. So... Meeting Sammy in that random sort of way and that, that introduction to radio must have been a real eye-opener for you. Oh, absolutely. I went in there and it was just... it was. At what age are you here? Like 18, 19? Eight, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would have been uh, maybe just 19, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was just I was just buzzing. I, I went in there and I just... That breakfast radio environment is, is just hectic. You know, I mean, you've been there, Ralphie. I mean, it's there's news breaking, there's people running around, there's producers all over the place. Now... Back in these days, there wasn't forty producers working on a breakfast show. No, I think I don't. You haven't been back to that place no, in, in North Ride on Macquarie Park, but <laughs> it's changed a lot in the fact that that little section where you used to sit and there used to be an office there that is now the entire Kyle yeah. and Jackie O staff, which is Incredible. about. I think last count is about thirty or forty, um, yeah. which is just insane. But it would, wasn't wouldn't have been like that. No. Who was Sammy working with them? Was she working so with Jason? Yeah, or? it was Sammy and Jason. Sammy and Jason. Jason Bowman. Jason course. Bowman, of course. Yeah. Um, so uh, Katie Lloyd was who's now Katie Anderson, but Katie Lloyd, uh, she was the producer. Um, yeah. So I came in, and I just loved it, and I, I got the bug straight away. And um, you know, Sammy said, did you like it? I said, this is amazing. How much fun's this? And she goes, do you want to come back? I said, I'd love to. So I came back the next week and then I said to Katie, can I come back next week? And so then I went back with another one. I said, do you mind if I come back? To- I'll come two days next week. She said, yeah, fine. And then I've, after two days, I did that for a couple of weeks. I said, do you mind if I come back tomorrow? And and then I uh, essentially did work experience there full time um, uh, for, for the best part of five, six months. Right, so you weren't getting paid, but you were just being part of that show. So, yeah. and you were still doing the karaoke stuff at night time. Yeah, karaoke. Um, I gave the karaoke thing away only because it's one thing. Um, like everything I do, I do at one hundred and ten percent, and it was very hard for me to be funny when I was tired. Yes. So I ended up. Um, I said to to Marco, who I was working with at the time, I said, "Marco, I'm going to have to let this go." So then I got a job at a, a pub. And, uh, yeah, so I was working at a pub 40 hours a week and then essentially on Breakfast Radio about 40 hours a week. That would have been uh, quite the stretch because anyone that knows that you get up for Breakfast Radio, you're not getting up early. You're getting up in the middle of the night. Correct. Correct. And that can be quite uh, quite taxing at times. But I, I, knew, I knew that if I was the right man at the right moment at the right time, something there was no way that this was going to be a negative experience. I was, you know, there was some negative days where I was just tired. I remember we did yeah. a radiothon. Uh, we used to do the mixed variety radiothon back in the day, and I'd literally hadn't slept for thirty six hours, and I was standing in a meeting, a breakfast meeting, and I was falling asleep standing up. Like it was just, it was great. But I knew that, and then lo and behold, they essentially created a position. They were like, okay, Katie needs some help. Who should we get? They didn't even interview. They just went, well, Adam's here. Let's give him the job. So all of a sudden I had this assistant producer. Now at the same time that after's course was still there yeah. and I, I, I thought to myself, oh, should I be doing this course? And the advice I got from a few lecturers who were working after the time were, you're going to do the course and then we're going to send, they're going to send you out to some regional radio station all over. You'll probably yeah. do four or five or six or seven if you're lucky. And then you'll come back to get the job that you've just been offered. Take the job. Yeah, it's the best thing. I mean, 
what did you learn from that overall experience about just being the person there on the spot and willing to put in the the yards for no pay because you loved it so much? Well, I think I think they saw passion straight away, um, and, and I think those breakfast environments. Uh, they're a tight knit group, you know what I mean, and uh, you know you've been a part of it. Uh, it, it, it. It's like a real tight squad, you know. You've got to have each other's backs. <laughs> it got to be, and um, especially that time it was a pretty tumultuous time at ARN. By the time I'd come in, there was a sea of change. hadn't quite arrived yet, but she was coming. Yeah, and I think everyone kind of knew that. Um, uh, Brad March had been brought on as a consultant at the, in the business, and. Uh, Kind of, he'd been given a bit of a license to 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 look at things and 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 um, look at possible changes to to grow the network, I guess. And so there, there was a bit, there was this kind of uh, almost siege mentality in certain parts of that business at that particular time. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I I guess I proved my wares with the guys, with Sammy and with Jason and and Katie and and, uh, and Ronnie Wilson and, and the guys. So. I think I was just yeah I was I was there I was a part of it. Look, there was a bit of luck there, but I think I worked hard enough to to earn my stripes there, and I got the opportunity. What a lot of people don't realise is that people think that if you work on breakfast, you will get an early finish. Like you might start <laughs> at, 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 at three or four in the morning, and then you're uh, out the door by ten. That's yeah. not the case, particularly on these breakfast shows. Is that and one thing I will admit, while we sort of made light of the fact that the Cole and Jackie O show is a, a squad bigger than Manchester United, the fact is that they'll get in at, at 3 o'clock, but they'll be still punching out stuff at 3 o'clock in oh, the afternoon yeah. and then they'll go home and do work and then go to bed. So I think what a lot of people don't realise is that it, it is a, a bit of a thankless job and you do clock up a lot of hours, don't you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and your on-air talent in particular, they, there's an expectation, you know. Like they don't expect you to do hours and they, they probably don't want to know the hours you do, especially when you're an off-air guy. But uh, but there's an expectation that, that you know, you've got your, you've got the house in order. I mean, that's – I always looked at – especially radio production taught me something about producing in particular, which when you're working with talent, you've either got to be a creator or you've got to be a facilitator. Yep. Um, now, on that particular show – we just had to facilitate. Um, Sammy to this day is still the one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. So quick, so smart, so clever, so funny. Um, that and we someone just, that knows like the craft of radio. Absolutely, knows it so well. And she'll make you accountable for it. Um, that we just had to create an environment where she could best do her trade. Um, where, you know, you have other shows. And I remember, um, you know, Dennis Clark came over and, and, and chatted to us um, it, those who don't know, he essentially worked with, um, you know, Ryan Seacrest from the yeah. bottom up. And uh, he was more a creator where – so he created the content and Ryan was just a gun at delivery. Yeah. could just deliver, you know what I mean, no matter what. He could walk in – not saying he did, but he could walk in 15 minutes before a show, Dennis would tell us, and he, he'd just pick things up and go, yep, cool, got this. Yep. Bang, and he would go. So that were the two different styles of producing. So on that particular show, it was about making sure that all the ducks were in a row. She had everything she needed, uh, and the same with Jason, and then they just did their thing. And from that perspective in terms of facilitating or creating content, a lot of time and effort goes into 
organising, you know, interviews or production that you associated with any of the segments that you might do and all of that kind of stuff, the producers are essentially responsible for making sure that that is ready to go. Oh, yeah, and and there can't be any holes. I mean, you've got to think, um, you know, Katie and I sit down and Katie, Katie was pretty – she was chilled, like, which was really what that show needed. You know, they needed somebody who had a cool head um, – and she was, she would just, but she would always stress on. Let's make sure everything's ready. Let's make sure everything's the same every day. The same papers are in the same order. Everything had to be meticulous, and that meant that they came into an environment where they were comfortable. They knew what to expect, and they could do their thing. So, um, yeah, yeah, it, it was a great experience. But whilst I was doing that, part of me was like, oh, you know, I've got to get my creative juices out as well, you know, um, and so. It's, Sammy became a mentor for me, so she allowed me to do that, which is great. Um, they started giving me a few on-air roles. They created a, a character called the Fat Kid, which <laughs> I don't know if you remember this one, Ralphie. I do, but, I remember, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I basically the Fat Kid was um, sponsored by Krispy Kreme Donuts and was the official courier to Sydney of Krispy Kreme Donuts um, at the time. Um, I would go to red carpets and share donuts. Uh, with celebrities on red carpets and asked them to play my organ, which I always had hanging around my neck. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I got, you know, we, we did a couple of little things like that. Um, but then uh, Travis Winks, who was working uh, Whistles and Hooters, yep. uh, I recall. Yeah, I was yeah. around at that stage. I yeah, think, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, uh, he had a sports show called Whistles and Hooters and uh, we became mates just because I love sports. So I'd come in and talk yeah. about sport with him and uh, then he asked me to start doing a couple of things there and then I started doing sports reports with Ronnie Sparks but they were a bit kind of left of field, Roy yeah. and HG style sports reports with Ronnie. Um, Ronnie was great. Um, my biggest thing I learned uh, from radio and I took it to TV later was the best resource you can have of people, you know, and, and so often, uh, especially in media environments, uh, we get into this battle of, you know, I've got to puff my chest out and I've got to prove something. Yeah. Instead of uh, I've got to develop and I've got to get better and how do I do that? It's by talking to people who've done it before. And I was just a sponge, man. Like I was just a sponge, especially at 2021, 20, 22. I, I just I wanted, to, I wanted to learn. I wanted to be around people who I knew were good, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know. People would see me like hanging out with Jonesy and Amanda after the show, even though I was down the hall, and I'd just be talking like, "Oh, you know, what did you guys do today?" And you know, I just want to learn, you know what I mean? And you know, guys like Richard Monk, and you know, these guys have just been there before. Um, you know, I got so much out of them, um, and I, I took the same thing to TV was just be a sponge, um, and that kind of led me doing a bit of that on-air sports stuff. Yeah, uh, led me to doing a full-time on-air gig with the Edge. Um, uh, and, you know, kind of that, that really gave me the bug for sport. I was going to say that bit that you mentioned there in terms of the greatest thing that you can do when you work at a radio station or a media organisation is, like you say, tap into the talent that's already there and use their ability to get better yourself. So having that advantage of working in that North Ride on Macquarie Park environment where it wasn't as big as your Triple M Today FM. Everything was all pretty much enclosed in that studio space upstairs where 
you'd run into these people in the hallway, like, all the time. So you'd be stupid not to at least strike up a conversation with them and sort of learn what you can from, from every individual. Yeah, yeah. And, look, you know, people call it different things. People call it networking, whatever. Like, I can just genuinely say most of those people that I are still my friends. I still talk to them and um, I still lean on them for advice, you know, uh, you know, it's funny. I walked into the Macquarie Park Studios with uh, Adam. We were doing a, uh, something with Dave Hughes in there uh, a few weeks back, and uh, you know, some of the old faces were still. You know, still saw Charlie Fox was in there, and uh, who was instrumental in in uh, giving me a start on air in regards to a full time gig. Um, uh, you know. It, some of those faces, you know, was Bruno. Well, I mean, Bruno was there, but he's a bit younger than me, but he was there at the back end. Of, yeah. You know, uh, but, you know, seeing some of those faces still, Eddie Reba, um, you know, those got just so much untapped knowledge that, you know, I just don't think as, in, you know, as a collective industry, we don't tap into that stuff enough. No. Now, as you mentioned before, there was a bit of a, a sea of change with the, the breakfast show there. That got changed up a little bit when Jason left the, the show. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. So we went from Sammy and Jason to Sammy and the boys, and uh, which is kind of they'd done it with Jonesy. Uh, so we had Jonesy's Breakfast Bar, um, which uh, basically they did rotating guests essentially to find someone that was going to be that the had right some fit. chemistry. Exactly right. And they found Amanda. So obviously that worked. <laughs> um, so we did the same. They did the same thing with Sammy. Um, there was also a sea change with the producers. Uh, Katie left. Um, you know, uh, Ben came in, you know, oh, sorry, Ben came in as a P, the PDs changed, then we had producers changed, then we had, there was a whole lot of stuff that was going on. Um, at the same time, like I was doing that, but then I was starting, you know, the edge started using me a lot, you know, yeah. I started doing a lot of stuff on the edge, um, which essentially in my, about my fifth year radio ended up with me just being full time breakfast. So by the time Sammy had left the station, which, um, Oh God, uh, it was 2007 maybe? Yeah, I yeah, think 2007. Yeah, around that time. Beginning of 2007, um, uh, they made the decision to move me off, off that breakfast show onto an on-air role with, with Christo, uh, and Emma on the edge. Yep. So it was the three of us on edge breakfast. Um, and Brennan Wood, I think, and Bruno took over Sonia and Todd. Yeah. Who came in at that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what was that like? Moving through that particular change, going from that producer role where it was obviously high energy and working with Sammy and Jason, and then working with the the, the other guys that were on the on the show as they tried to you know change it up a little bit, try to get traction. Mix was trying to find an audience, and then all of a sudden you find yourself on the edge uh, on air. So what was that? What was that like for you? Oh, it, it was interesting. I mean, because I was learning on the run, you know what I mean? I'd done some on-air work. I'd done some sports reading, you know, like on weekends and things like that. Um, you know, I, I'd kind of dibbled and dabbled in it, and I'd been reading Sport on the Edge for probably, I don't know, six months prior to going on that. And I was only on the Edge breakfast probably about probably about three months. So um, the end of kind of 2007 when that, that kind of dissolved, um, the Sammy Show dissolved, over into that Christmas period, um, and then Matt White, who I worked with on a on a show, uh, a summer breakfast show on Mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we connected because they used to bring in all kinds of people. Oh, yeah, summer breakfast was. You know what? Summer breakfast was so much fun because I produced summer breakfast for four years, and we had different talent coming in and out all the time. And oh, man, I had the best fun because they basically gave me the keys. Yeah. This young twenty year old, twenty two year old, and said. 
here's the keys, look after some of the breakfast for us. We're going on holidays. Yeah, it's like five, <laughs> five, five six weeks, non-ratings. They, re- they really don't care as long as there's something on air every yep, day. Absolutely. It, 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 you know what? I had so much fun. It was the most fun ever. And uh, I, I sparked a really good relationship with uh, Matty White. And uh, we sit down after each show and we didn't talk about the show. because Now, was, was he um, hosting Today Tonight at that stage? Or no. was that before that? He was over at, still at 10? Or just left? I think he just left. Right, I think okay. he was at. I think he was at seven by this stage. Doing would have been the motorsport. Yeah, only. motorsport. I think in motorsport. Yeah. I don't think he made the full transition to yeah, today yeah. tonight at this stage. Um, but he said to me, he said, "Listen, he goes, mate, you should be working at sports tonight." Because we I, like my not like I was a bit of a rain man with rugby league. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I knew my stats, and I knew I could name every grand final team since nineteen eighty three. I, I I just knew my stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, he goes, mate, you need to be working on sports tonight. I said, oh, man, I have a journalism degree. He goes, oh, mate, you can do it on your ear. You'll be fine. He goes, if a job ever comes up, promise you me you'll go for it. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. You know, it was one of those passing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mate, 100%. Yeah, mate, yeah, mate. <laughs> so during this transition period where Sammy had left the network and I'd moved across to the edge, uh, I saw this job come up, sports tonight, producer journalist. Yeah. And just Matty, his thing was ringing in my ear and I thought, oh. What have I got to lose? You know what I mean? Yeah. What have I got to lose? And, uh, yeah, I put my application in and um, I actually didn't put, strangely, which seems stupid now, but I actually didn't put Matty down as a reference for whatever. I don't even know why I didn't. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I didn't put him down as a reference and I had a really colourful reference from Ronnie Sparks, which was hilarious, that he wrote himself. Um, uh, which you can had, like, a caricature. Oh, mate. <laughs> I think I've still got it somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I got one from him. Benny Lanimer wrote me one. And look, I, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but I got a call and said to come in for an interview. So I went in. I was the last interview of the day for Craig Reynolds, the boss at the time. And he said, look, Adam, I've got to be honest with you. <laughs> he goes, you're the least experienced. He goes, I don't even, he goes, I'll be honest with you. I'm not really sure why I'm giving you an interview, but I, I felt compelled to do so. I said, okay. We sat down and had a chat. Because it's about like joining the dots for them, right? Like it's like. You're up against probably guys that have been in it for three, four years at other stations like Channel I know 7. some of the guys up against and some of them, oh, I'm not going to name names, but like some of them are like really well-known journos now, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. They do it really well for themselves. So I'm like, oh. And, you know, you're, you're assistant producer, you're sort of working on the edge, which, you know, to be fair, a lot of people in Sydney don't even know Absolutely. what that is. Absolutely. Um, so... Looking at that from his point of view against other sort of seasoned candidates must have been, okay, well, what's this guy actually doing here? <laughs> yeah, but yeah. there must have been something there. Look, I, the, my big thing I, I thought, and I, I thought about it before I went in, I said, and I knew I was going to be up against it. I thought, well, the only thing I can really control is, you know, is effort. And uh, so, you know, my, my message was to him was you, you might find someone who will work as hard as me. You won't find anyone who will work harder. And I... And I might be behind the field, but I'll catch him pretty quick. Um, now, I don't think Matty's ever admitted to me, but I'm pretty sure I got a pretty good reference from Matty White, who happens to be very, very close friends with the boss at the time there. And, uh, yeah, look, a couple of days later, um, I got off the gig and I went to sports tonight. Now, tell me about that. What was that like, transitioning from radio, where you had such a, a great time and you were doing pretty much everything across the board to then going into TV, a TV environment where you didn't actually 
know a whole lot. So the the learning curve would have I would have imagined would have been fairly steep. Yeah, yeah it was, um, and, and not just TV, TV news. Um, it was really I, I dabbled in news, as you know. Like yep. I'd done a little bit of here and there with news in radio, but. Not really, not going out and grinding out a story. You know, no. I, I read the AOP feed and, and, and wrote a, written a voiceover, you know. Yeah. I, you know, but going out, hunting a story, these are things that you learn. You apply your trade over over time. So they're things I hadn't really got my head around. So it was really about listening, you know, being really observant, being really aware of my surroundings, talking to the right people and uh uh yeah, it was it was really steep, but it, it was good. The guys the guys there I no one knows, you know, you don't go into a workplace and people look at your resume, so your teammates no. don't know where your background is. So they were really accepting of me. Um, and one of the first things I did, I remember after a week I, I'd written a few things. I hadn't talked on air yet. I hadn't done any on-air work. I'd just written a few LVOs. Yep. And, um, I saw Bill Wood sitting there. I thought, oh, I'm just going to go introduce myself. So I walked over to Bill. I said, oh, g'day, mate. I'm Adam. I just started sports tonight. And anyone who knows Billy Woods will know he's the most generous person you could ever work with. So generous with his time, it's unbelievable. And uh, and I was up front with him. I said, oh, you know, you know, I've got this gig here. I told him my background. He goes, ah, listen, you bring me your scripts every week. We'll sit down for an hour and we'll go through them. You obviously did that. 100%. See, that's the thing is like, you know, you, you mentioned there how you went about it. A lot of people, there's a lot of false promises. There's a lot of false, yeah, mate, I'll do that, no worries. And then what I find these days is that, there's not a lot of follow-through. I'm the, of the belief that if you say you're going to do something, you go ahead and do it. Yeah. You know, rather than just pie in the sky kind of stuff, which endears yourself to the guys like Bill Woods. Yeah. Because essentially what you find is that people that have been in it for a long time, they actually enjoy the fact that they can help somebody else. Like me now, I find no greater joy than doing that. And that's off the back of, of working with guys like Bill. Um, so, look, I'm not going to say every week we've got around to do it. You know, it's a busy environment. Bill's a busy guy. More my fault often than, than his. But but he was always there for me, and that was that was huge. And, and so were a lot of other people too. So, look, I had to learn quick on my feet. But what I found is that breakfast radio environment, because the immediacy of it, yep. I found it really easy to transfer that over to television. Did you find it slow at all in TV? Because in radio, like you said, you pretty much have to do all of it, whereas TV, you've got other people that can do various parts of the job. 100%, and that's where the strength was. And I've, it's, it's funny, I was only speaking to someone else the other week who's in radio who's looking to make the transition to TV. I said, mate, you'll do it on your ear. Because if you're, you're a hard worker in radio and you move over to TV, um, as long as you can wrap your head around the technical side of stuff, and I'm pretty good at doing that, or I was at that time, you're going to be okay. So, so from a work ethic point of view, I thought, oh, okay, this is where I'm going to catch everyone. You know, this is where I'm going to get up to speed. Is because I'm going to I'll work probably my work rate's probably going to be a little bit higher than than, and that's not bagging anyone. It's just because of the immediacy element of breakfast. You're under that much pressure. Yeah. So, so I think that that was huge help. You know, breakfast radio set me up for everything. I, I think the other thing too, and I did it in radio, and I certainly transferred it to TV. Um, is is I wanted to know how to do everything, you know. And I wanted to know because I, I know in radio, being a good producer made me better on air, and being on air made me a better producer. Yeah. And TV, there's nothing true of, from my experience. 
is, um, you know, as my TV career went on, I was doing on-air stuff and then I'd do off-air and I was kind of split my time between the two. Um, and I remember my boss fronted me one time, about three years in, and I was doing pretty well. I, I, I got a couple of internal kind of news awards for some of the work I'd done and um, he said to me, he goes, you have to choose. I said, why do I have to choose? Because you have to choose. Sooner or later, you're going to have to choose. Do you want to be off air or do you want to be on it? Yeah, and this seems very lofty. But I said, well, Denton did it. Rove doesn't. I go, you know, and I'm not comparing myself to them, but I was no, trying no. to make an example to yeah, my yeah. boss. I said, well, they, they don't choose and they're doing okay. I go, and I, and I said, I go, I think what I do on air makes me better off air and what I do off air makes me better on it. And, um, is it the knowledge thing? Is it absolutely? The, is it the whole knowing how? Well, I guess it's kind of like you compare yourself to a mechanic. If you know where all the parts go, you're obviously going to be able to drive the car better. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think also you appreciate stuff a bit more. Yeah. And, and certainly, uh, I've moved more into leadership positions in more recent times. And, and I think, I just think I, because I understand the process it takes to get done. Um, you know, there's nothing worse, and it doesn't matter what line of work you're in, there's nothing worse when you've got someone barking down your throat to get something done and you know that they don't understand the process of which it takes to get that thing done. Or I imagine in TV you working on a story then have to rely on the editor to do this and you have to do that exactly and the sound right. guy and all that kind of thing, whereas if you know how to do it, you can go and get it done. Well, that, but or you can also make people accountable. Yeah. So if an editor comes to me and goes, oh, Tom, this is, you know, we're not going to get this done in time, mate, I go, well, why not? You know what I mean? You get, well, why not? Yeah. I mean, I know I could cut that in this amount of time. Yeah. Let's go. We can do it. You know what I mean? So there's a, that element of where you can make people accountable, but more so it's it's just more an appreciation that when you're working in a team environment, you, okay, oh, I know what kind of, what that takes to get that done. I know what that takes. I know these parts have got to sing together. Um, and certainly um, later on in TV where I moved in kind of executive production in sport and producing my own television shows and things like that. I think I had a better grasp on how to work with talent because not that I was talent per se, but because I'd been on air, yeah. I knew about delivery. I knew about, you know, uh, ebbs and flows of things. I knew about, you know, how to work with a camera. So I could really coach them and ma- make them better. It's really strange. It's re- the way some people operate in terms of it's a team environment in many radio or TV stations, but a lot of people still manage to work in silos. So having that appreciation of both sides of the coin naturally gives you an advantage. I'm going to give you a footy quote because, you know, me, I love my footy. <laughs> but I heard a quote from a bloke the other day, and uh, Corey Parker. He said, they asked him, what's, the, what's behind the success of Queensland? He goes, well, it's not enough just to go out and do your job. You've got to do your job, and then you've got to help your mate out. I don't think there's any better way to sum up what makes a good team great than that. You know, you need to be able to – some days you're going to be down, you know what I mean? And if you've got a good team, you know what, they'll lift you up or they'll cover the slack or, you know. And I knew that – I knew that if – I wanted to be that guy on that team, whether it was the Sports Tonight team coming in, a little bit hungover on a Sunday, and then they say, you've got to do a live cross. Old mate's put – yeah, no worries. We'll do it. Yep, yeah, let's go. Um, whatever it is, you want, you want to be the person that everyone can rely on. Um because in all the anomalies that are in our media, um, that can often be hard to come by, to be the reliable one. And it also, when things in- inevitably fall apart, as they can do in media quite frequently, yes, you can then not fall back on one particular area. You can sell yourself as somebody who can slot into anything 
because you ultimately you still need to pay the bills, right? So yeah, absolutely. If if, if you're if they've just sacked you know um, fifteen journos, well that's fine. You might have to then go and try and find a, a job elsewhere, but you're going to be up against those fourteen other guys that have also been given the flick. But if you're able to be a producer yeah. or an editor or something like that, um, it expands the opportunity base, doesn't it? Yeah, 100% right, Ralphie. I remember at 10 in particular, and uh, once again, another big sea of changes coming through. Uh, you know, the media industry was on the dip, and uh, it was just before the first wave of redundancies at 10. And I remember, I remember having a conversation with a couple of the senior news guys there, and I said, well, go, do you guys know how to – can you edit? Do you, oh no, I don't do that. I said, well, okay. Um, what? Like, what? Why don't you learn? Oh, that's their job. I'm like, and I, I knew myself. I thought, well, I'm going to learn how to do everything because when it comes to the crunch, they're going to want people to do everything. Like, they're going to want journalists to edit their own stories and cut their own stories and produce their own stories, which is happening now. Yeah, but I, that, that writing was on the wall, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one who saw it. Um, but some of those, some of the older heads at the time, were like, oh no, no, no. That's not no, that's not my gig. Being able to adapt in these day and age, you have to. is just so important, isn't it? So important. You've got to have so many like strings to your back. Uh, look, most of the guys who, who left have left, and most people land on their feet one way or another. You know, whatever happens. But I remember the time I thought, wow, you know, surely you can see the writing on the wall. What's gonna, what's about to go down here? And embracing and and being able to tap into the strengths and the possibilities associated with social media because that's something that you said before you're reasonably technically minded so you're also able to identify what you can do to promote certain aspects of it because that would have been coming through just as you were um, learning your media career at the same time so being able to create content that is able to be shared by you know people and we turn, use the hear the term influencers so often yeah, these yeah, days yeah. to to be able to move with the the speed of the technology is also really important otherwise you just get left behind don't you look one of the uh, i um i got pretty heavily i'm a big boxing fan love my combat sports ufc mad for it um and during my time with 10 i was probably one of the first mainstream uh, sorry, journalists on mainstream television to promote and do stories on on the UFC in particular. And I remember watching them, and they didn't have a major TV deal. Um, they essentially grew their entire sport online. Their entire sport, like this, is the fastest growing sport in the world. It's incredible. Isn't completely, it? completely grown online through forums and social media and huge YouTube. And I think to myself, they didn't even need traditional media. And they've gone from being a $2 million business to at that time taken to about a billion dollar business. Now they're a $4.2 billion business, right? So they bought it for $2 million and they built the entire thing without traditional media support. I think there's something in that. There's there's definitely something in that. And um, so I always had it in the back of my mind. It was probably – hadn't really even hit full swing by that stage. I mean, people forget it, it's still reasonably new social media. Like we're only talking – you know, Facebook's was it been around since two thousand. Yeah, so we're we're about a decade in or so, or for like, like even less for Twitter and yeah, and other I mean, uh, platforms. It's just it's in its infancy. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So uh, I knew it was I knew in my head it was an area I needed to get stronger. Then I probably didn't really hit my straps with digital media and my knowledge around it till till I moved to the Eels. Yeah. During your time at at ten, you also created a, a thing for yourself where you were going to do or was that in the transition period where you were 
doing your own video blog and things like that for the MMA and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, as I said, uh, I'd become uh, pretty aligned with the UFC. Um, uh, Ten had done a TV deal to to televise their first event here in Australia. I'd already by that stage been doing stories for probably about two years um, on Sports Tonight and and on 10 News. Um, You know, I think 10 News were the first kind of – Nightly bulletin to ever do a story of the UFC. Yeah, um, it was a feature package I did, and so and then there was some interest from the project as well, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you about that. that. Was a funny one, but so the UFC came out here, and uh, I kind of unofficially consulted to them about the market and, and those kind of things. So I worked pretty closely with them on their way over here. Um, so that, yeah, that, that was a raging success. Um, it was at the time the fastest selling UFC of all time. Um, so it killed it over here. 10 saw the UFC, oh, this is, we're, let's jump on this. They probably didn't go all the way in. They probably, yeah. they probably put their legs in. They probably didn't do a full dive. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the, the UFC was happening. I was kind of really ingrained in it. And, uh, uh, I did a couple, you know, I went to fight camps. So I, you know, they flew me over to the States. I did a bunch of stuff. It was great. Went to events, all these kind of things. And it's funny, by this stage, as a, a journalist or, you know, as a fleeting journalist, I guess, I, I'd, I really wanted to invest. I wanted to know more. I just was, you know, anyone who's been a journo, you know, the core of a really good journo is you're just hunting for knowledge. You want to know more. And asking questions. And asking questions. You want to know more. And I remember I, I used to wonder myself, like I, I'd been in fight corners, I'd been in fight camps, but I'd, I'd never understood when I'd go to chat to a fighter for a simple interview where I'd ask them cliche questions for a five o'clock bullet and help them promote yeah. their fight, why they would be so crabby. I couldn't get it. I thought because I thought to myself, just get up for, just get up for fifteen twenty minutes. Just, just get, just pep up for fifteen twenty minutes. I never understood yeah. it. And I thought to myself, look, the only thing I, I've done everything in the fight game. The only thing I haven't done is actually fight. So uh, when the redundancies came around, I, I decided I'd kind of in a position where I'd, we'd just missed out on the rugby league deal. Oh, actually, no, I'm jumping around. No, we haven't missed out on rugby league deal yet. That comes later. But I, uh, I thought to myself, I'll take this redundancy. I'm going to see how I go in the marketplace. But then, I, like this curiosity was killing me. Like I was writing for UFC magazine. I was around the fighters, and I thought, oh, the only thing I've done is fight. So I thought, what if I just did a social experiment and I did a full fight camp and I fought a professional fighter? Yeah. So I, I, I threw it around with a few guys I knew, and they said they were like, "That's a great idea. <laughs> we should do it." Like, see what happens to an average Joe when you give him a professional fight camp. Well, at its core, it's what you were doing already in terms of just storytelling. Absolutely. That's all it was. And uh, so I've got a few people behind me, um, a company called Competitive Edge. Um, they kind of uh, decided to back the project in. Um, so they backed me in. Uh, they created uh, basically a fight camp around me. I had 12 staff, um, everything, coaches, physiotherapists, doctors, um, I trained full time, so it was uh, up to four times a day, six days a week. Uh, I went from being ninety-eight kilos to seventy-two kilos in a three-month period. Um, training full time, also learning martial arts. I mean, that's on a couple of high school high school biffos and a couple of fights yeah, on a footy yeah, field. Yeah. Oh, man, I, I, I didn't know how my hands up. I did taekwondo when I was twelve, so I had to learn the craft. Um, and so after three and a half months, we did a, we did an event at, uh, at Sydney Olympic Park. 
Um, I fought a guy um, who'd been training for for a number of years. Um, went in the ring, um, survived the first round. Or, you know, I, I, I fought pretty well. I remember getting in my corner and uh, and. My coach said, mate, what are you doing? We've been training all this time. We've been talking about doing all this stuff and you haven't done it. And I went for something that wasn't on. But it really was about the journey. I know that's cliche, but it, uh, I blogged the journey along the whole way yeah. um, on YouTube. Um, I involved influencers. And what that that really did, that that gave me digital media on steroids. Like that was like, okay, yeah. cr- cross-media promotion, multimedia. What, what made you decide to... Just think that that was a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, because other some people look at things and they think that might be a good idea. There's a difference between thinking about something and then also doing it, but not only just doing it. Because a lot of people give up following it through to its its completion. Is that just a character trait of yours? That's just like I've got this idea and I'm going to see it through to the end. Oh, yes and no. I, I think. Look, the other thing was is I had pressure on me, like. It started to get a bit of traction. People started following it. I was getting people from Germany and all over the world getting in touch with me to say, oh, I'm following your five project. This is crazy. What are you doing? You know, and, and in my weekly video blogs, I'd show everything. I'd show my injuries. I'd show when I was feeling in the dumps. I'd, you know, I'd show myself in my speedos, jumping in an ice bath. I apologise to the missus about that afterwards. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was just a, a warts and all kind of view. Because I thought if I'm intrigued by it, surely something else will be intrigued by it. Yeah. Um, and they were. Yeah, it was funny. It, it, I didn't really go out to think, oh, this is going to be this huge thing, you know. And look, to be fair, it wasn't the biggest thing in the world, but it got a lot more traction than I thought it would. And um, and it was just a great learning experience, especially especially in that digital media space because um, – like like you said, it's not that old digital media. When I did that fire project, it was kind of starting to really starting to kick, and I, I, I was a bit behind the eight ball. Um, but getting to understand it, talking to people, um, you know, through the digital channels, connecting with people all over the world through this thing, I thought, wow, we're just I'm just not tapping into this from my knowledge base. I'm just not. But I knew good content. You know, if you make good content. It always wins, you know, and uh, so, so must it like help you now realizing having gone through that particular journey in its infancy and sort of as you said, pretty much through your entire career, learning on the run, working out what works, what doesn't work, just trying a whole heap of stuff until it actually sticks to the wall. Absolutely, and look, there was other things that came out of it. You know what I mean? I, I um, you know, being a sports journal, I got so much respect from athletes after doing it. Getting an interview after that, because I, uh, after the fight project, I ended up going back to 10 for a contract, uh, to work on the rugby league rights deal and work on the two shows that we did over there. Um, I got so much respect from other athletes because I was like, oh, okay, well, you know what it's like now. You've been there. You've done it. You know, um, so, so, so that was one part of it. The other part was, uh, you know, all things like I got sat down and had breakfast with Wayne Bennett. Money can't buy that kind of you stuff. You know, and, and, he he told me he told me something that just resonated with me, and uh, he said y- you can't. Uh, and Hayden Knowles has said it to me before, like it's something that uh, Wayne had said to him, and then Wayne said to me. Um, but he, he he said you can't see attitude; you can only see evidence of attitude. And uh, it's certainly something that throughout that camp I did, and I I, I certainly live by now. Is that you can say all the things in the world, like you're saying. People say things. But you can't, you can't see that. 
You can only see evidence of what you're saying. So every day, then and now, I look to provide evidence of the attitude that I have. And that, that was one of the biggest things ever, learning about that. Let's talk about now those programs that you work on at 10. You worked on the game plan with a couple of my mates, Andrew Moore and Steve yep. blocker Um yep. That must have been a real experience because, like you said, the idea was for 10 to leverage those programs with a view of getting the broadcast deal right or pitching up for Correct. for getting that. So um, in order to show the NRL, I guess if we sort of bring it back to its most simplest terms, your keenness for the sport yep. was to have a couple of programs on the air. You know, one of them uh, went for a few years and another one I think lasted 12 months or something. Yeah, that, so, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, that was the Monday night show with Adam Hawes and Ricky Stewart. Yeah, that's it? correct. Yeah, yeah, So that was one week at a time. So I was primarily responsible for that. Uh, Stevie Hurston uh, looked after the game plan. Uh, before that, we had Thursday Night Live and yeah. a few other things. But, yeah, as far as those rugby league shows go, uh, he had the game plan. I looked after one week at a time. Um, one week at a time dissolved once the rugby league deal didn't come through. Yeah. We started the rugby league deal. Uh, from all accounts, it was super tight, um, you know, which could have seen it. My career take a completely different path. I, yeah. I'd probably still be there working on the rugby league broadcast. But yeah, then we worked on the game plan, and that was fun. I uh, I got asked to come back after I did the fight project, and actually I got asked to come back uh, more on air role than an off air role. So I yeah. became like their roving reporter. So I'd do things like crosses, but more so got to go do feature stories, of just quirky rugby league stories. It yeah. took me all over the state and um, up to Queen, like all over. You know, I'd, I'd go and. and because of my, you know, I got to go into origin camps and all these kind of things, and uh, yeah, th- that was a great show. It was really, really good TV, you know. And obviously, when you're inside a show, it's easy to be biased. Going, oh, this is great, but it was a really, really, it, it was, a, it was a different proposition um, as far as a footy sh- rugby league show went. Yeah, it was, it was serious with a bit of fun rather than fun with a bit of footy. I would always say to the guys that. You're better off aiming to make people smile than you are to make people fold over and laugh because not everyone finds the same things funny. No, that's right. Right? But everyone smiles at a cat video. Do you know what I mean? Like, so let's make people enjoy the experience and walk away happy because if you make a joke and it falls flat, that's negative. Do you know what I mean? But if somebody can sit there and smile throughout the, the, the program, it, that's a good experience. You know what I mean? That's a pleasurable experience. The smile yeah. is a pleasurable experience. So... I think that's what we did with that show. We had funny pieces in there, like we did bits and bobs of it, you know, for a bit of a laugh. Um, we talk footy, we, but, you know, the kind of characters that Andrew and, and Blocker and, and, and Joel Kane are, there was always going to be light, you know what I mean? It yeah. wasn't going to be too heavy duty. Um, and, and Steve Hurston, to his credit, he was a great producer in, in that. Like he made sure that, hey, look, guys, let's not take ourselves too seriously. Yep. Let's talk footy, but let's let's not – Go too far with it. Let's let's just speak in the everyday man's language at a pub. You know that's the kind of chat we want to do. Um, I think the Manny Johns show do it, do it really well now. You know what? But they put a lot of energy into that. And they go, yeah. okay, well that's our that's our bit. You know what I mean? That's our you know Fletcher and Heine do their thing as well. But a lot of work goes into that. Um, you got writers, you got producers. A lot of work goes into that. If you don't have those resources, you can't do it. You don't try to do it. Yeah. It just it just never works. Yeah. Then you mentioned earlier there that. You then moved across to the Parramatta Reels, which yeah. 
being on the different side of the fence yeah. altogether, like in terms of, okay, you'd been up and you'd worked in media for such a long time, now to cross to the other side of the fence. The dark side. you're dealing with journos rather yep. than working alongside them. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, so I came into the Eels uh, when uh, Ken Edwards became CEO. Uh, they were looking to change uh, the... I guess the way that media operated in in in, in particular that organisation, but largely most NRL clubs, uh, most NRL clubs work on a bare minimum. They'll throw a media manager in there. They'll they'll do what they have to in regards to having a digital team in there. Well, I mean, that, I guess that comes with a whole lot of experienced administrators that didn't necessarily understand the value of digital content and or the power of social media. And I guess trying to sell it to a few of those. Older cronies would have been difficult across most clubs. One hundred percent. And uh, so I uh, got, you know, got approached um, uh, to to take a gig there. I went in for an interview. Uh, kind of kept me saying all, all, all the things kind of I wanted to hear. And uh, you know, I love I love footy, man. I, I love rugby league. And um, so you know, it, it just was a nice fit. I thought, look, this is I, I'd really started to enjoy being a leader uh, within television. Um, from those EP roles and senior production roles. So I thought, look, this is a great opportunity for me to take my leadership to challenge my leadership skills to another level. So I went there and I got to build my team essentially from scratch, you know, create structure, um, create plans, uh, you know, manage budgets, which I'd done from a TV perspective, but obviously a bit bigger in rugby league. So Ken really gave me a license to go create, create this media department, tell me how much, this is how much money you got. I need us to. I need this to work. I need you to build a media company within our football business. So uh, yeah, we went to doing that. Uh, invested pretty heavily um, in that digital space. Got some really, really good people in. I knew my strength at that stage wasn't my strongest area wasn't digital media. Like I knew it. Yeah. I, I had a good knowledge, but I, I knew if I wanted to take, so I need to get good people in. So I got a girl called. Uh, I should call her a girl. She's very much a lady. Uh, Sarah Neal in, uh, who was at the Dragons at the time. Uh, I'd worked with her at Channel 10 for a little bit. She was in the digital department there. Yeah. But she knew her stuff and uh, she was super creative. Her and her friend, um, uh, Kiki, they have a blog called Oh Errol. Um, and it, it, they're super creative girls. And I thought if I can tap into that yeah. and bring that here and make really good content, that's going to help. So I coaxed Sarah over um, to lead my digital team. Uh, Hugh Humphreys, who I know you've worked yep. with in the past, uh, he's a radio journal. He came on as our social media um, manager, uh, so uh, social digital media. So he, he did some of like, He was kind of our our roving reporter, I guess, and did all our kind of uh, video content, hosted our video content, as well as managing our social media platforms yeah. under the direction of Sarah. Uh, those two in particular, we had a, some other guys there. We had a videographer. We had a, excuse me, we had a yeah, photographer, graphic artist. Uh, and then I had a media manager as well. So we had a pretty strong team there. Um, I mean, you, you came in, did a little bit of writing for us yeah, there yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, but I knew that the only thing I could control is, is what I could control, which I couldn't control results. No. I can't control footy teams. I can't control board changes. I can't control things, but I control content. And I thought, I saw what other clubs are doing, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, no, that's okay, okay. But where can we be different to give it to give us that edge? And 
And it's a club with such a, a proud history, not that they've won a comp for a long time, but such a strong fan base and Absolutely. all that kind of thing, which in this day and age, to be able to tap into a club that has so many members and or potential members. Fans, fans, yeah. It's really just a, a, a great sort of base to, to start from. I mean, not all clubs have that fanaticism that the Parramatta Reels do, and which is quite surprising given the fact that they haven't won a comp for such a long time. Well, well the, the only thing they weren't is was engaged. They just weren't engaged. And you hear that word a lot. It's a bit of a buzzword of engagement, you know. But they, they just generally weren't being talked to. Uh, actually, they were being talked to, they weren't being talked with. Um, so we made that a priority from our social media perspective that we needed to engage more. And uh, as far as our content goes, I said, look, whatever happens, we can make really cool content. We can make really good production values. Let's see, let's see if that changes things up. Let's see if it, it lifts things up. And, uh, you know, after 12 months, our, that, that was a tumultuous 12 months. That was the, uh, uh, despite everything that went on, Wooden Spoon, Ricky Levy at the end of the year. Couple of signings that weren't signings. The Joshua Park, all these things. Um, we ended up number one in the network digital in 12 months, despite all those things. And it was, it was really, really about, you know, like I said, content is kick. It must have been a great achievement for you to think that you started off with at base level and then to take it to that next level must have been exciting. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It was exciting. But it was most exciting for, like, I think I mentioned before, the best resource any business can have is people. And so I spent most of my budget on the staff and getting good people. And, um, like, Sarah and Hugh in particular, they they just work. They were passionate and they worked hard. And they still are. They're both still there and they're still doing a great job there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is what we needed to do, and then they and they implemented. They're the other ones that got us there. Um, but it, you know, it was Ken's vision that he wanted us to become a media. We didn't get to see that out, but um, you know, because you know, things happen. But I was just super proud of the guys. You know, because we set them a chart, we set ourselves a charter as a team. This is what let's see what we're capable of. Let's give this a real shake and and to get those kind of results. And and from all accounts, they're still flying there, so it's great. Where do you see the future now for? digital content and the stuff that you're producing for Adam with the Manshake and his personal brand. So where is that headed in the next 12, 18 months? Well, look, I think the big thing is is that, you know, what you're seeing is you're seeing more brands take control of their brand, you know, not so much hanging on on PR or traditional media to get their message out there. Uh, you can take control of that yourself. How important is that for brands to actually recognise the fact that they can actually create and own their own media as, as such and not be reliant on traditional media. Obviously, that gives you a, a nice little boost because it's still um, an environment that's not going to die anytime soon. But there's so many options available for companies to create their own content. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, th- this word traditional media really have to catch up. And, and obviously all the radio stations and TV stations have integration teams and all those other things. But when you've got the avenues like YouTube and, you know, you've got companies, like WWE have got their own channels that they run strictly online, and UFC and all these different businesses, um, you can completely control your own destiny in regards to who you're talking to, you can break down and you get real results. That's the other thing with digital. You know, TV, radio, it's surveys, 
There's right, a small they're, portion. They're, they're still filling out books exactly. for radio. Like what year are we living in? Where digital media, I can see exactly who's looking. I can see exactly the journey they take between where they first find out to when they get to my checkout. You, you, you can see real true results. There's no way of skirting it. There's no fudging it. You can't fudge it. There's no way of fudging it. And so there's absolutely still a role. We, you know, we advertise heavily on traditional media, um, you know, uh, the man shake, I don't want to sound like a hypocrite Well, you've got to fish where most of the, the, the fish are, right? Yeah, triple M. We love them. Um, but the but you really have got so much more control of what you do now. And, you know, it's an ever-evolving space too. I think that's really important to remember. Like it changes. People's habits change. Um, you know, a couple of years ago there was a big thing about snack culture. So the snack culture when it comes to content is about people don't have a lot of time to sit there – Snippets. They just want little snippets. That's why Twitter worked for so well. Twitter works so well. But now what we're seeing is going the other way a little bit. You see things like podcasts, which go for an hour and people go, oh, okay, let's let's really get – I can sit there for an hour while I'm on the train or, or whatever or I can watch it. So now some of these long-form things are coming back into the fray. And I think that's exciting. I, 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 think, I think people are really starting to get a grasp on telling their story and that they can tell it in a number of different ways. Um, the big thing we try to do, and I still try to do, is I try to get as much blood out of the state as possible. So if I've got a story, I'll tell that story. Let's tell that story in a bunch of different ways. Let's tell it in 140 characters. Let's tell it in an image. Let's tell it in a long form video. Let's talk it, tell it in a, you know, a short form vine. It's about speaking, they're different languages. You've got to speak differently because people engage on those different platforms in completely different ways. And you can be the same person. But I engage differently on Instagram than I do on Facebook. And I engage different on Facebook than I do on YouTube. Once again, Twitter, again, different. I engage differently. And then I, in real life, I engage differently again. Yeah. So it's about acknowledging that you've got to speak different languages to those different platforms because people take in that information differently there. And I guess when we look towards the, the future of, of that is that, like you said, it's an ever-evolving space, but ultimately quality will win in the end. Absolutely. And I think what you're seeing, quality absolutely will win. I, and I think that's where, in my view, where traditional media is hurting themselves at the moment. And and it's sad to see because, yes, I'm doing, I'm working in a different space, but I, I love TV and I love radio and I'm still passionate about those things. And what I'm seeing is you're seeing quality taken away for quantity. And, and even with Jono's behaviours and habits, I remember when breaking a story was about you broke a story to make a difference, you know what I mean? Because it was going to – but now we break a story because we want to break it before the other guy. We don't break a story because it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to inform people. That's not front of mind. It, it, front of mind is, oh, I've got to beat that other network. And I think what, that, what happens there, you know, is that you get stories that, oh, well, yeah, that story didn't come through. Oh, it doesn't matter. And we move on. The race for speed – is actually killing accuracy, which is the, it's fun, which is the fundamental, um, the cornerstone in which journalism is pretty much founded on. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, it baffles me, it baffles me because it, it seems so obvious. It seems so obvious, you know, but you've got bean counters who make decisions um, in areas where they're probably not equipped to make those decisions. Um, and then you've got a bunch of, you know, you've, Unfortunately, a lot of the time, ambition overrides, you know, knowledge and 
curiosity and ability. But, you know, look, uh, it's it's not dead in the water, but I think we need to acknowledge that, you know, we're losing quality. You know what I mean? You're bashing our stories. You know, you're, you're hearing, like, you know, I remember growing up, you had all these different voices and, you know, now when you tune into a television, a lot of the times you hear the same voice and you hear everything sounds the same and the scripts sound the same and, you know. I remember listening to the late Harry Potter scripts and they were just different to everyone else on Channel 10. You know, it was just, they were just different. And you knew when it was a Harry Potter, you could read a Harry Potter script and you knew it was a Harry Potter script. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You could read a Bill Woods script and you know it was a Bill Woods script. Um, where we're kind of just putting ourselves in this box, you know, instead of having different voices and, and different styles. And, um, it's unfortunate, but look, there's still great look. There's still great talent out there. There's still great writing. You know, um, yeah, I really appreciate good writers. You know, I just think that's a real craft. Writing is just, um, you know, he's a mate of mine. But uh, but I think Edge Webster writing in the Herald is is by far the best in sport. Yeah, I, I just think he captures. He speaks a language that anyone could can understand, and he and he writes the way he talks. Well, I think that's one of the great strengths of any great writer is the fact that if you're reading something, you want to hear their voice as you're reading. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's enough of that. I don't think it's embraced enough. Essentially, you're getting people in here at a younger age and you're expecting them to write or present with the poise of veterans, and unfortunately that's just not going to happen. No, no, and it takes time. You've got to cultivate and you've got to surround them with, uh, with good people. I remember I had a... <laughs> Uh, some people won't disagree, but I had a, I had a, they had a voice coach for us all at Channel Ten when I first started there, and I was a jock, like I was a radio jock. Speak like this on an FM station, yeah, all right. And uh, I put me this voice coach, and I'd go back and listen to some of my packages after I'd implemented the things that she wanted, and she was like, "Oh, this sounds really good. I'm really happy." And I'd go this through. God, it doesn't even sound like me. Like it doesn't even. There's no character. There's no. You bash the personality out of me. Yeah, and I, and I. I said to my boss at the time, I said, I can't do it anymore. Okay, take me off air if you want. Okay, but I can't. It's not me. It's not me. Yeah. And he let me go and I just did my own thing. And I'm like, oh, I haven't got a John Law's voice or a Ronnie Sparks voice, but it's mine, you know, and I'm going to, you know, I can, I'm more comfortable telling a story with it. Um, and I, I think that's just a snapshot of, I think, what, what's happening, especially some of our young journos, you know. They're not being encouraged to find their own way because there's so under pressure and so under staff that they've got to get up to speed quick and get to this level. And if they're at that level, we're content with that. As long as they can stay there, that's okay. Yeah, look, hopefully we can get the right leaders in the right positions that could switch that up and – because like I say, I'm still super passionate about TV and radio. We'll wrap it up in a sec. You've been very generous with your time, but – what is some advice that you'd like to give to anyone that's looking to break into media these days, whether it be radio, TV, or in fact head down the, the digital path, which is taking off at a, at a rapid rate, as you've mentioned? Look, I think um, have a broad view, uh, you know, really go in with a, 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 a – and be a sponge and want to learn. And surround yourself, surround yourself with good people, you know. Uh, everything I've learned, I've learned off, you know, is because I've just listened. Sometimes you just got to – yeah, sometimes tuck the ego out of the pocket, you know. I, I don't, there's been some, you know, different people who've got in trouble over the years for, you know, uh, maybe, maybe too, too tough on junior staff. Uh, look, for mine, man, I used to get slapped around, you know, when I first started. And it's the best thing that happened to me. 
because it, it taught me things. It taught me accountability. It taught me what the standard was. It taught me um, of dealing with different people and different personalities. In this weird, wonderful, wacky world of media, you're going to meet a whole different range of people. And a lot of the great people are different. And I don't say that as a negative thing, but they are different. And the reason they're great is because they are different. So you've got to be able to to work with that. So whatever you do, go in with a broad mind and and, and never stop learning because it, the whole space is just ever-evolving. Have a thirst for knowledge, have the same thirst for knowledge as you did on day one that you do on the present day. Adam Thompson, thanks very much for your time. No worries, Ralphie. Thanks for having me. There he is, Adam Thompson, brand manager for Cranky Health. If you really enjoyed my chat today with Adam, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at Adam underscore W underscore Thompson. Got that? You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.